0: This has been a particularly difficult week uh, with the news of sin um, and encounters with sin there in uh, Texas community and uh, even among a particular denomination that a lot of us us have had some connection with over the course of uh, our lives. Uh, It reminds us of the travesty of sin Uh, the hardness of men's hearts; those that we look at and recognize and would be thankful for regarding uh, their good ministry and uh, seasons of righteousness and help and then um, and then also see that even in the course of that uh, in our fallen nature we fall and So when we are encountering both in the course of the week, we are reminded that God is continuing to show us the seriousness of sin uh, at every level uh, and in every human life. But at the same time he's doing that, I want to share this report with you. I was talking with a good friend of mine yesterday and he was telling me that his brother had attended a birthday party uh, of a close friend of his. There were eight men who have been... uh, being discipled together over the course of years. And he said, he said, for an hour and a half, he said, "Uh, I just wept. He said, because we uh, had worked through things together over the course of our lives that had been hard in regards to sin and in struggle with sin, but we had seen the redemptive work of God and we were really caring for each other's souls. And he said, So for an hour and a half, I just sat and we're in that setting and just wept. Uh, and I made this comment to my friend. I said, We have talked this week about uh, the travesty of sin, and we have been looking ahead to the redemption of God. But God, in His grace, gives us glimpses of heaven along the way in the course of our lives. Uh, they will be brief but we see it and then we recognize that over against the world that this is what I want for eternity. And while we won't experience it here for eternity, for those who know the Lord Jesus Christ, we will experience that kind of soulful longing and satisfaction and help and the abundance of strength that we talk about. And the kind of deep-seated love, a love where the Father and the Son and the Spirit are directly loving us in a time and in a place where there is no sin and there is no hatred and there's no killing. Um, And when we sang of that just a moment ago, And as we look ahead even toward when we sing again today, uh, we sing toward that end reminding us because that is in Christ what we long for and we hope for. If you have your copies of Scripture, um, you're welcome to turn with us to uh, the 12th chapter of Matthew's Gospel. This is our 14th week in Matthew. Uh, We are continuing to work through this text. I'm going to take a little piece of 12 today and um, I know it's warm, I know our setting is a little bit different, I'm sensitive to that. You may not think so when it's over with, but I really am, I am sensitive to that. Uh, I was listening to a sermon uh, not long ago and a particular preacher, he referenced this familiar song, this isn't a guess who, you will know it, but I want you to listen uh, to this song and I'm going to spare you my rendition of it. Dean, I'm not going to sing it, okay? He says, thank you. But I will draw your attention to uh, these lyrics. Imagine there's no heaven. It's easy if you try. No hell below us. Above us only sky. Imagine all the people living for today. Ah, imagine there's no countries. It isn't hard to do. Nothing to kill or die for. And no religion too. Imagine all the people living in peace. You may may say I'm a dreamer, but I'm not the only one. I hope someday you'll join us and the world will be as one. Imagine no possessions. I wonder if you can. No need for greed or hunger. A brotherhood of man. Imagine all the people sharing all the world. You, you may say that I'm a dreamer, but I'm not the only one. I hope someday you'll join us and the world will live as one. I think most of us in here have probably heard that song. John Lennon. And the title of the song is Imagine. I want you to think on these for just a moment. How might one envision such images in light of the fact that Scripture clearly gives testimony to the existence of heaven and hell. Lenin's ideas seem to be calculating that somehow humanity had the ability to produce peace and enjoy this brotherhood that is only found in the Lord Jesus Christ. And as he stated, live in the world as one. And he posits that the divisions of countries And the existence of wars are at least related to the existence of religions. Was he right? At least at the very basic level, religion does cause division. It does. Religion in and of itself isn't unifying. We know that. As much as we hear the drum beats of the various religious tribes around the world, they're not beating in harmony. They're not beating together. They're, calling, they're not calling religions to unity. In other words, if religions are a mean to one unifying God, one higher power, if that is their purpose, then we have the whole of world history to educate us That religions do not unify, but they divide. So Lenin's solution is to imagine a world with no religion. What he wants to imagine is a world with no God. Because religion is a system of beliefs, values, practices that are concerned with the sacred. In other words, an acknowledgement and a worship of a supernatural God or power. Now the question is, is, what does all that have to do uh, with our text this morning? Well, we're in Matthew's Gospel 12. We're going to pick up in verse 15. Before we read it, I want you to remember that Jesus' kingdom is misunderstood. That is what Matthew is communicating, is that this Messiah King, this promised King who has Full authority. We sang about that this morning, that God has given him everything. He has absolute authority in all things. You and I exist because he has granted us to exist today. It is by his authority that we exist. Matthew is trying to help us understand that his kingdom is misunderstood and that all along the way there is opposition to this kingdom. There's opposition to Him. There's opposition to His kingdom. And this opposition is growing. The opposition is coming from the religious. Those who are religious people. In other words, religion is opposed to the kingdom that Christ is establishing and has established in his coming. The opposition is coming from that group. I want you to think about it for just a moment. That was a religion... When we look in Matthew's Gospel, the Pharisees, who were Jewish, who visited the temple every week, who would not think about missing going to the temple. They wouldn't think about missing going to the synagogue. They held on to the law. They added to the law. They sought to practice the law. We looked at that last week. It was a religion that had been established through a covenant that was established by God Himself. Now I want you to think about that for just a moment. A covenant that called out a people not because of any goodness or value that they held, but simply by God's gracious choosing. He called them out. He related to them. He provided for them. He protected them. He made promises to them. One of which, hugely important promise. And that was that he would send a Messiah king that would establish an eternal kingdom. One much different than they could even imagine. Much different than the one John Lennon could imagine. Because at the center of this kingdom, there was a king with absolute authority. And you know what? He was acknowledged and is acknowledged and his citizens, God said, would faithfully... Trust, love, obey Him. Something that all the prior generations of people had not done. And now the promised Messiah King had come and the religious, the religion, opposed Him. There was a division. It didn't unite. It didn't come together. Oh no, there was opposition. Last week Jesus made it clear that they were rejecting God Himself when they rejected Him. Remember what he said? He said, the Son of Man is the Lord of the Sabbath. He was saying, I'm God. And then he demonstrated what that means. And he wasn't doing it to beat someone down. And he wasn't doing it to show off. No, he just wanted them to understand what it meant to be in a relationship with him. The one they were rejecting. And so what did he do? Well, there in the synagogue, he healed a man with a withered hand. He pointed to the unique relationship that people were to have with God. He didn't intend to rob them of doing good on the Sabbath. The worship, the love and intimacy with God should lead to a genuine care for people. Their souls, their souls mind you, and their needs. God demonstrated this by healing the man with the withered hand. But I want you to look at verse 15, 14. And I want us to hear the response of the Pharisees. And the man stretched it out, his hand, and it was restored healthy like the other. And in verse 14, but the Pharisees went out and conspired against him how to destroy him. That was their response. Response, how to destroy Him. It's worth noting, mind you, that while they condemned the disciples for eating food on the Sabbath, just taking a meal, and while they condemned Jesus for healing a man on the Sabbath, they were willing to accommodate their own efforts to plot His murder on the Sabbath. The religious self-righteous condemn the sin of others while accommodating their own sin. And in that, they fail to experience or display, mind you, the mercy of God. And then we hear in verse 15, Jesus, aware of this, withdrew from there aware of what aware of the fact that they were seeking to kill him he withdrew from there and then we hear and many followed him and he healed them all and ordered them not to make him known Matthew is intent on helping us realize that Jesus is highlighting before the people by the grace of God over and over again what his intentions are Who he is. What he's about. He's intending for us to see, and we'll see in just a moment, that this was a much different king. In Matthew chapter 4 and verse 23, we hear that Jesus went out through all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction among the people. He says it again in Matthew chapter 8 and verse 16. That evening they brought to him many who were oppressed by demons and he cast out the spirits with a word and healed all who were sick. And in Matthew chapter 9 and verse 35, Matthew tells us again, and Jesus went throughout all the cities and villages teaching in their synagogues proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction. He is intent on making his audience and us know that Jesus over and over again is giving evidence to the power of God and his saving purpose. The Messiah, the Messiah King was present. And then he read that Jesus ordered those that he healed, we read it, not to make him known. Now don't be confused. It isn't as though Jesus didn't want them to know him. It isn't that he did not want them to acknowledge him as the one who was sent to save them from their sins. He is here today. We have already heard from his word, a living word that Jesus is about saving us from our sins. I love that song. Jesus, what a friend for sinners. And all through that, I hear me, me. I'm a sinner. I'm a sinner. But Jesus is my friend to save me, to keep me, to heal me, and to hold me, to save me, to forgive me. That is what his purpose is. And Matthew was intent on us understanding that and we need to know him and jesus wanted them to know him but there are reasons why he gave this instruction we're not going to go into those days you say what are those reasons Well, let's just look at what matthew said one reason and matthew's intent on selecting this reason look at verse 17 this was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet isaiah There was something that the prophet Isaiah had said about Jesus that is incredibly huge when we look at Him and we look at the kingdom. And Matthew takes the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the the Old Testament, and he takes what has been said about this in the Masoretic text, and he puts them together together, by the direction and under the direction of the Holy Spirit for us to hear these words and listen to them. Behold, my servant whom I have chosen, my beloved with whom my soul is well pleased, I'll put my spirit upon him and he will proclaim justice to the Gentiles. He'll not quarrel or cry aloud, nor will anyone hear his voice in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break and a smoldering wick He will not quench until He brings justice to victory. And in His name, the Gentiles will hope. Why did Jesus say, don't proclaim about what I'm doing? He's warning them in the end to proclaim who He is. Not about their healing, but who He is As, and we hear it, listen, behold my servant. Matthew has talked about him as king has talked about him as God, as being Lord of the Sabbath, as being the promised one, the one who would come and save his people from their sins. And now he points us to the image that Isaiah gives us of the suffering servant and says that this king is a servant. Not the kind of king that anyone would think of. Not the kind of kingdom that anyone would think of. By inspiration of the Holy Spirit, we are told, Remember who Jesus was determined. Remember who Jesus was determined to be by what He did. Who Jesus is determine what He does. It determines what He does. Now we'll do well here to go back and listen to Jesus' invitation before we press in to this part of what Matthew says coming from the prophet Isaiah. So if you have your Scriptures open, look back in chapter 11, in verse 28. We looked at this the week before last, but I want you to hear it again. I love this. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. For I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. Let's look at the text for just a moment. Behold, my servant, whom I have chosen, my beloved, with whom my soul is well pleased. I'll put my spirit upon him. He will proclaim justice to the Gentiles. He'll not quarrel or cry aloud nor will anyone hear His voice in the streets. A bruised reed He will not break, and a smoldering wick He will not quench until He brings justice to victory, and in His name the Gentiles will hope. And I want you to think about this in light of how it compares to everything else around it. How it compares to the Pharisees who would begrudgingly have the disciples eat on Sabbath and then condemn them who would condemn Jesus for healing a man with a withered hand. Look on down in verse 22. A demon-possessed man, a demon-oppressed man, who was blind and mute, was brought to Jesus, and he healed him, so that the man spoke and saw, and all the people were amazed and said, Can this be the Son of David? But when the Pharisees heard it, they said, It's only by Beelzebub, the prince of demons. That this man cast out demons. Think about this. They condemned Jesus for healing. Now they are calling him literally the devil, that he is operating under the power and the forces of Satan himself. And yet, all of this is packed around what is said here about Jesus. Well, what does it say? Well, first it says that the source of Jesus' life is His co-eternal relationship in the Godhead and the Father and the Holy Spirit. We heard stressed when we had the call to worship. We heard stressed in our assurance of pardon. Yahweh, Lord, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. That's why in singing the doxology, we want to make sure that we praise Yahweh. The triune God. Why? Because the relationship is so unique and so significant for every person to come to know christ jesus for who he is to come to know the father to come and be empowered by the spirit to live in the way that god has designed for his people to live in his kingdom in loving and trusting and obeying him it is yahweh who brings this about and it's here that we see that his co-eternal relationship in the godhead with the father and the spirit how do we see it well listen to what he says, "Behold, and it's clear that Yahweh is speaking this, Lord, behold my servant whom I have chosen, my beloved with whom my soul is well pleased. The source of Jesus' life. It's not that He was created. Oh no, it's that He is co-eternal with the Father, co-eternal with the Spirit. It's a remarkable thing to be chosen by God. God's choosing is not like our choosing. We're given options. God does not give options. He chooses and He brings about that work. God didn't come around and He didn't uh, take a poll to see what kind of Messiah the Jewish people wanted. He didn't come to see what kind of king they wanted. He didn't come and, and put out a questionnaire and say, tell me what you think you need. Tell me what you think my purpose should be. That's the reason we started this morning in our call to worship. We don't look to men to bring the answer to what we need as regards to salvation. We have already been told that we are sinners. We are in desperate need. Every one of us of the Lord Jesus Christ. And His saving work and atoning work on Calvary. We have been told that. And it is said so here. That God chooses Him as the servant. Chooses Him as the one who will act on behalf of Yahweh in this way, in coming as this king, this servant king. Pay attention also that Jesus is loved. He said, Behold my servant whom I have chosen, my beloved. You know, we've already heard this a couple of times in Matthew's Gospel. One at the baptism. We'll hear it again at the uh, the transfiguration. The point is, is that God is so in love with Himself and so in love with His purposes and so in love with redeeming those who are lost that He loved His servant enough to send Him to do the work on our behalf. I attended a memorial service this week. And this isn't being critical, I'm just telling you, this is what we hear in relation to the gospel. Is that the person was a believer because they had cooperated with God. We don't cooperate with God. Who are we to cooperate with the sovereign of the universe? His purpose stands. He chooses. He states. He works. We don't cooperate with Him. We obey Him. We honor Him. We worship Him. We love Him. Those who know the Lord Jesus Christ we don't cooperate with God. We are His servant. And here, Jesus gives us a picture of that servanthood and the love that God has for Him. The kind of love that God, the Father has toward the Son. It's not some kind of benevolence. It's not some kind of dutiful debt of honor. That's not the way God loves His servant. And it is not the way that He loved us through His servant. He loves us with a deep love where He finds pleasure in His heart by placing that love for us in our hearts so that we can only and will only find pleasure in Him. I wonder today, just stop and pause. Is that the kind of relationship that you have with the Lord Jesus Christ? Is that the kind of relationship that you have with God? Where nothing else pleases your soul. Where nothing else satisfies you. That's God's intent. That's redemption. That's His work. That is the ultimate outcome of salvation. It's not that we feel good about who we are. It's not that we go out and live the way that we want to live and do what we want to do. It's not even to give God a a kind of a head nod every once in a while to acknowledge, yes, you're good. We began this morning with singing praises to God. And in the middle of that psalm, we hear about all of this work that God does. Go back and look at it. Take it home. Look at those pieces where the Lord does, the Lord does, the Lord does, the Lord is. All of that is to point us to the fact that those things are absolutely necessary in our lives. And when we realize that, then we find pleasure in nothing but His presence. And then notice that the Spirit is placed on Him. The Lord is working as the Lord always does. In unison, doing what each person of the Godhead does to accomplish The redemptive work of God. I want to fast forward. We read it just a moment ago. You know the reason that Jesus spoke so directly to the Pharisees for their attributing the work of the Holy Spirit, mind you. He wasn't defending Himself. He was God. You know the reason that He spoke so directly... And just really a hard saying when he was talking about the unforgivable sin. Read it. Look at it. In verse 29, he goes on to say, Or how can someone enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he binds first the strong man? Then indeed he may plunder his house. Whoever is not with me is against me, and whoever does not gather with me scatters. Therefore I tell you, every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven. But the blasphemy... The blasphemy, listen, of the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven. Why? Because no one produces the work that the Spirit of God produces in the life of an individual. When we blaspheme the Spirit of God, they could blaspheme Jesus, but when they blaspheme the Holy Spirit, He said, you are treading dangerous ground because you are treading on the ground that the Father has in His providence the work that He has decided to do through me that you may accept or reject but you blaspheme the Spirit of God that brings about the work of the healing and deliverance and salvation in the hearts and lives of people you blaspheme Him you reject Him And there is no forgiveness. And it is the Spirit of God that came upon Christ. The Pharisees misunderstood. This self-righteous, self-sufficient, self-centered group rejected Christ and denied the power of the Spirit of God in a feeble attempt to discredit the work of Christ. The work that was not about drawing attention to Him for His name, but about pointing to God, Yahweh, and His salvation. Now I want you to pay attention to the spirit of His ministry and how it reflected His character. Notice what He said, I'll put My Spirit upon Him and He will proclaim justice to the Gentiles and He will not quarrel or cry aloud, nor will anyone hear His voice in the streets. We're not here for political purposes, mind you. But I can't help but think about what leadership, human leadership does. They cry out in the streets. They cry out in the streets. They try to point people's attention to them And what they've done or what they are promising that they can do. And this is not what Jesus does. This is not that kind of kingdom. This was not His intent. Notice what it says. It says, He will not quarrel. He will not stand in the street and debate with you. He is not going to debate with you in your heart. He is going to give you clear revelation of who He is even today, by helping us see that He is the promised one. And that's not for debate purposes. That is to reveal clearly to you and to me who most need Him, that we would trust in Him and follow Him. The point Matthew is making is that the very nature of the ministry of Jesus and His kingdom is foreign to what we would expect of a reigning king. The emphasis is on the fact that he is a servant and no one servant stands up and boasts about himself. No one servant stands and seeks to fight the one he serves. And Matthew is showing us that he is not conquering in the same way that one would think he would conquer. He Conquered sin and death by going to the cross and giving himself as a sacrifice for our sins. That's his conquering. That's his deliverance. That's our hope. That's our only hope. He's not debating that with us, he is stating that as clear fact. What makes this so amazing? is that Jesus holds all of this in the context of His great privilege in the universe. That is that He is God. He created. He sustains. And yet in humility, He serves in this way. If any ruler ever had the right to reclaim his own kingdom by force of arms and by battle shouts and by saying, charge on with the tank company or whatever it may be it would have been Jesus but that's not what he does no he was anointed by the Holy Spirit and the result was different it says he'll not wrangle or cry aloud anyone will hear his voice in the street he'll not deal with his enemies by quarreling no when the river of your life runs deep Just know that it is Jesus. It is Jesus who brings peace because He does not bruise a reed. A bent reed. He he will not allow you to be broken. He doesn't put His hand over and pinch off a smoldering wick even if the oil in the lamp is low at the moment. He saves, He sustains, He holds us up. What are we to make of all this? My guess is that probably some of us here today have not yet trusted Christ. I want you to hear this today. And I want you to look Make note of this in verse 30. Whoever is not with me is against me and whoever does not gather with me scatters. There is no neutral position when it comes to Christ. No neutral position. We are either with Him or we are not. We are either citizens of His kingdom seeking to love and honor and worship and obey Him, or we are enemies. It's that simple. He leaves no room. That's the reason He doesn't debate. He just simply shows us who He is. And then we may have some believers here today. You're tired. You're discouraged. Janice had to rally me last night. In in all honesty. I was singing today of the grace of God and I was reminded last night I I wasn't feeling that grace in being lifted up. But He did. He did. I was last night a smoldering wick. He didn't pinch me off. In the course of the night and this morning at 3.30, He blew on that little bit of flame that was just flickering. And in that, I felt a rush of the grace of God. That's what Jesus does. That's who He is. And He will not stop doing that for the believer. We sang a moment ago when we said, He will keep me to the end. That is only true. Keeping you in Him, if you are in Him, to the end until, verse 20, look at the last part of it, until he brings justice to victory. In other words, until he completes salvation for all of time and it is consummated upon his return and our final deliverance into his presence, be it by the resurrection of the dead or be it being lifted up into glory. That is the kind of kingdom that Jesus establishes. I wonder today if you understand that. I wonder today if you understand it or if that is misunderstood. Do you need something else? I want to share this with you. Some of you maybe who have taken philosophy class at some point in time have heard of Bertrand Russell. He was a famous skeptical philosopher early in the 20th century. Russell was once asked in an interview, "Now, this was the man who wrote an essay, Why I Am Not a Christian?, okay so understand what he wrote and why he wrote it why I am not a Christian and he argues against the existence of God so religions all religions he he has imagined a world without a God like John Lennon did okay And he was asked on the other side of life, on the other side of death, if you did happen to run into a divine being and that divine being were to question you and ask you why you didn't believe in me, what would you say? And his response was, not enough evidence. Not enough evidence. In closing... In verse 38, Then some of the scribes and Pharisees answered Him saying, Teacher, we wish to see a sign from you. Okay? At this point in time, there's no telling how many hundreds of people they had witnessed who were delivered from demon possession and oppression. There's no telling how many hundreds of blind people that they saw who were given sight. How many crippled people they saw get up and All of this had taken place. And here they say, we just don't quite have enough evidence. And he answered them, an evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign. In other words, ask for more evidence. But no sign will be given except the sign of the prophet Jonah. He said, look back. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. And the men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment. There is a judgment. And this generation and condemn it for they repented at the preaching of Jonah. But behold, something greater than Jonah is here. You're going to get a chance to see the drama of this sign. The death of the Lord Jesus Christ and what it meant as we come to the table in just a moment.